Well, shalom, shalom, y'all. I'm a southern fried Jew. (laughs) But it's great to be here with you this evening. I am a Jewish believer in Jesus, born and raised in New York City. And I moved to New Orleans in 1975 to go to graduate school at Tulane University. And I've been in New Orleans ever since. And uh, when I was in college, I went on a search for meaning in my life. And I looked in lots of different places. And that search led me to Jesus. And when I was 20 years old, I accepted Jesus as my Messiah and my Redeemer. And I'm so thankful that I know him. And I'm sure you are too. And uh, ever since I became a believer, I have wanted to share my love of Jesus with other Jewish people. And so God prepared the way for me. I went off to seminary. And since 1994, I've been on staff with the Christian Jew Foundation. I'm a missionary evangelist. And I share Jesus with Jewish people wherever God opens up the doors. And I don't know if you're aware of this. There are thousands of Jewish people who live in New Orleans. So I'm constantly meeting with Jewish people there. And we are in the high holidays now in the Jewish calendar. This is actually the last night of Sukkot, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Rosh Hashanah was... 15, 15 plus eight days ago. And Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah, they pray that their name would be written in the book of life. And they have no idea what it means, but they pray it anyway. And uh, I had a special dinner at my house that night, and I invited a Jewish person that didn't know the Lord to that dinner, and she accepted Jesus as her Savior at that dinner. It's thrilling. We have a saying in Jewish evangelism, when one Jewish person comes to know Jesus, we're having revival. Because <laughs> my people are very stubborn. <laughs> and I am having revival because I've led three Jewish people to the Lord recently. God is on the move, and it's wonderful. But uh, I came this evening to talk to you about Israel today and in prophecy. And I want to get right into the message because I think it's really rich. Um, I'm sure you are following the news and know that uh, Secretary of State John Kerry has made negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians one of his top priorities. And as Israel returns to the negotiating table with the Palestinians, the status of Jerusalem is one of the most contentious issues that they are going to be discussing at these meetings. And the word of God has a lot to say about that. If we could go to the second overhead. The book of Zechariah states, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. And then the next overhead in the book of Joel, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. So the key phrase here in this passage is, whom they have scattered among the nations and also divided up my land. And we're going to be looking at that in detail as I go through this teaching this evening. Now, Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state has been called into question today. And her sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem has been questioned like never before. And so what I want to do this evening is spend some time reviewing the history of the formation of the state of Israel from both historical documents and also especially the Bible. And so I want to be able to prepare you to be a blessing to the Jewish people so you can be blessed by God because of your stand with Israel and not be cursed. So as I go through this this evening, I want to answer six questions. We could go to overhead four. And those questions are, to whom does the land belong? Who are the Palestinians? What is the goal of the Hamas, PLO, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah? How is the media handling this crisis? Will there ever be peace in the Middle East? And then the most important question, what should we do and you do in response to this crisis? So I'm going to go through this question by question this evening, and I'm going to attempt to answer these questions for you. So the first question is, to whom does the land belong? Now, in order to answer that question, I need to take you through a little uh, review of history. Most people don't realize that before Israel became a nation, the land that she occupies now was part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire was a dynasty that was founded in the late 13th century, and it was dismantled by the British after World War I. And the center of the Ottoman Empire was in what is today Turkey. And at the height of its growth, the Ottoman Empire extended from southern Russia to northern Africa and to the Middle East. It was a huge dynasty. And Mark Twain took a trip to the Ottoman Empire in 1867, and he wrote about what he saw. And this is how he described what he saw. If we can have overhead six. Overhead six, that's a picture of the Ottoman Empire. That's how it spread throughout Southern Russia, the Middle East, and Africa. So this is what Mark Twain said about the Ottoman Empire, and especially the land of Israel, which was not Israel at the time. And he said, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. 
So what Mark Twain saw in the late 1800s was absolute desolation. The land was good for nothing. It didn't even have cactus trees growing in the desert. And if we go to the next overhead, this gives you a little bit of an idea of what the land looked like. It was desolate. There was nothing there. Well, little did Mark Twain realize that in a matter of just a few decades, the land would be transformed and would flourish. Well, how did this happen? Well, conditions in the Ottoman Empire began to deteriorate, and there was ethnic strife. And there was persecution of many ethnic peoples all throughout the Ottoman Empire. And at the same time that there was strife within the Ottoman Empire, there was something going on in Russia concerning the Jewish people, and this was called the pogroms. Now, Maybe you don't know what a pogrom is. Has anybody ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Have you seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Well, Fiddler on the Roof was uh, was based in a little shtetl, a little village, where Jewish people were being persecuted by the Russians. And basically what happened during this time is that Russian citizens would go into Jewish villages They would murder, rape, pillage, and destroy the villages while the Russian police looked on and did nothing. It was a terrible time. And because of this persecution, between about 1880 and 1920, two million Russian Jews immigrated to the United States to escape persecution and about 200,000 immigrated to Palestine to be free. And it's interesting that if you meet a Jewish person here in the United States today and ask them, so where did your family come from? About 80% of Jewish people will tell you they came from either Russia or Poland during the pogroms. How many of you here are in touch with somebody who is Jewish who doesn't know Jesus as their Messiah? Would you raise your hand? Awesome. Okay. Very good. Um, each one of you who raised your hands, I'm changing the subject a little bit. I hope you will meet me in the foyer right after this service because I want to talk to you. Okay. So each one of you, if you would go to your Jewish friend and ask them, so where did your great grandparents, where'd your family come from? How did they get to the United States? 80% of them are going to say they came from Russia or Poland. Well, those Jewish people who who left for Palestine, uh, when they got there, they began to purchase this worthless land that nobody wanted. It was either desert or swamp. And they purchased the land from absentee landlords, most of whom who lived in Turkey and were very happy to get rid of the land. They were very happy to get any kind of amount of money for it. And so Jewish people started purchasing this land. And this was in fulfillment of the word of God. If we go to overhead eight, the book of Jeremiah says, Behold, I will gather them, and that's the Jewish people, out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath, 
and I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate. And then if we go to the next overhead, Jeremiah said, men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south, for I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. And that's exactly what happened during this period of time. Land was purchased, if you go to the next map, and where you see the dark spots, that's where Jewish people purchased land. It was purchased in the land of Benjamin and the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the mountains, in the lowlands, and in the cities of the south. And it was perfectly fulfilled during this time. And from the the purchase of this worthless property, the Jewish people began to eke out a living. And they drained the swamps, and they watered the desert, and they built houses, and they developed industries. And in the process, migrant workers from throughout the Ottoman Empire were attracted to this area of the Ottoman Empire because of the the work that was being made available to them through Jewish industry and hard labor. And so we have many peoples on the move during this time. And the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica tells us that there were no less than 50 different languages that were being spoken in this area at that time. And these 50 languages represented the 50 different people groups who were attracted to the jobs that were made available for them. And I want to read you a list of some of the people groups who came to this area at that time. So it's not only Jewish people, but it was also Greeks and Syrians, Latins and Egyptians, Turks and Armenians, Italians, Persians, Kurds, Germans, Afghans, Druzes, Bosnians, Sudanese, Algerians, Hungarians, Scots, Britons, Tanks, and the list goes on and on and on. And what most people don't realize is that it is the descendants of these 50 divergent people groups who are now calling themselves Arab Israelis and now have citizenship in the land of Israel. And along with citizenship in Israel, they have the highest standard of living in the Arab world, and they also have representation on the Israeli Knesset or the Israeli parliament. So if you ever hear people say that Israel was an apartheid state, it's nothing but a lie. 
Because in an apartheid state, people don't have equal rights and people don't have representation in the parliament. But Arab citizens have equal rights to Israeli citizens. So, through the labor of these Russian Jews, the land became fruitful and was cultivated and this also fulfilled the word of God. Let's go to overhead 11. The prophet Amos said, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. And this prophecy has literally been fulfilled. In the next overhead, we have a picture of a vineyard in the northern part of Israel. And it says that vineyards would be planted. And uh, it would be a fruitful land. And since 1901, the Jewish National Fund has planted over 240 million trees in Israel. And Israel is the only nation in the world to enter the 21st century with more trees in the land than she had the century before. And if we go to the next overhead... This is a picture of one of the projects that was planted by the Jewish National Fund. This is a valley in the desert. In Israel, it doesn't rain in the spring, summer, and fall. It only rains in the winter. And because it only rains in the winter, there's often flash flooding in the desert. And so these trees were planted in a ravine in the desert to catch the water that was running off from these floods, to capture it, and to make a microclimate out of it. So this is just one of the many projects that the Jewish National Fund has undertaken in the land of Israel. So the Jewish people, for the first time in 2,700 years, are now back in the land of promise. We have been wandering among the nations of the world ever since the Assyrian captivity 2,700 years ago. And since that time, we have been gathered from many peoples back to the land of Israel. Jewish people have been regathered to Israel from the north, the south, the east, and the west, just as the scripture prophesied. And if we could go to the next overhead, here you have a list of the peoples, the countries from which Jewish people immigrated to Israel between 1948 and 1995. During that time, over 2.4 million Jewish people returned to the land of Israel. And this fulfilled the word of God in the book of Ezekiel. If you go to the next slide who said that we would be gathered out of many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. So it's literally fulfilled before our eyes, because that land is no longer a wasteland anymore. 
It is a fruitful land. Well, during this time, the early 1900s, and between 1917 and 1948, when Israel became a nation, there were a number of resolutions that which were passed uh, by the British and also by the United Nations concerning the reestablishment of a nation for the Jewish people. If we could go to overhead 16, um, this shows all of the land which was promised to the Jewish people as a national homeland by the British in 1917. And you'll notice that it encompasses the area of land which is both to the east and the west of the Jordan River. It was a huge area of land. And in 1922, 77% of the land that was promised as a Jewish national homeland was given to the Arabs as Transjordan. So all of the area that you see to the east of the Jordan River, that was given to the Arabs as Transjordan. So just what is left to the west was, was what Israel was supposed to inhabit. Well, then if you go to the next slide, you see another map, and this is a map from 1947, and it shows you even more of this land that was taken away as a Jewish national homeland. Everything that's purple was given to the Arabs, and everything in the orange was for the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people were happy to settle with that little bit of land because it was the first time that we would have a national homeland. But the Arabs were not happy with the situation, and they attacked Jewish villages throughout this area. And thankfully, the, the, Israel, the people who were living there were able to hold back the attacks. And then uh, the next year, the Israelis were able to declare themselves a nation after the United Nations also gave them the right to a Jewish national homeland. And then when that homeland was declared, the, uh, these Arab armies attacked Israel once again. And as a result of this attack, many of the Arabs who were living in the areas that the Jewish people were given fled and they fled to refugee camps, and they were told by their leaders to leave the, leave the land so that to be safe, and don't worry about it. It'll be over real quickly, and you'll be able to come back and re-inhabit where, where you lived. Well, the war didn't work out as the Arabs had planned. Israel was able to hold on to the land that she had, and as a result, these Arabs who fled ended up in settlement camps, which today are still called refugee camps, but are actually modern cities. And that's where you have the Arabs who are on the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. It's from this delineation of the land back in 1947. And ever since 1948... The, the people living in Israel have had to defend themselves against a major Arab attack every eight years over the last 65 years. 
So can you imagine what being uh, attacked every eight years does to an economy? What would we do in the United States if we were attacked every eight years? It would be chaotic. Our economy would be in a shambles. But Israel is thriving and happens to be uh, at the center of a technological innovation in the world. And, uh, but she has had to defend herself over and over again to be able to hang on to the little bit of uh, land that she has now. Well, let's go to um, the next slide. And um, I think I may be beating a dead horse at this point. I think you all have the idea that Israel is promised to the Jewish people as a national homeland. We see these prophecies being fulfilled. Well, you can go to the book of Genesis and read that both Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were promised the land of Israel. And the land that was promised to them was from the river of Egypt in the south to the river of the Euphrates in the north. If you go to the next overhead, this is a picture of the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's far greater than the land that Israel possesses today. But once again, the Jewish people are happy to have the little land that we have. It's okay. We're not trying to fight to gain more land. The reason why we gained more land in 67 was because we were attacked and we were able to successfully defend ourselves against an attack. But the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob encompasses land which today is a part of Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt. But we're satisfied with what we have. We're not trying to take this land, although the Arab nations think that we are trying to take things from them, which we're not trying to do. So I think I've answered the question, to whom does the land belong? The land belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the Jewish people as an inheritance. Okay, so let's go on to question number two. Who are the Palestinians? The people who live in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip today call themselves Palestinians. And a lot of people today believe that they are actually descended from the Philistines. But that is not true because historians will tell you that the Philistines disappeared five centuries before Jesus was ever born. So the Philistines uh, disappeared as a group in the 5th century uh, B.C. And we hear over and over again in the media that Palestinian lands are being occupied by Israel. Now, where does this come from? Well, this term Palestinian was actually coined by Yasser Arafat. He used this phrase in 1967 for the first time to talk about the peoples who lived in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. 
And he began to repeat this over and over again until people actually believed that there was a Palestinian people. He learned a trick from Hitler. Repeat a lie long enough and eventually people will believe it. Because Palestine was never a, uh, a phrase ascribed to Arabs, but actually in 132, it was ascribed to the Jewish people by the Emperor Hadrian and um, was also ascribed to Jewish people in the modern period by the British. And in their Oxford English Dictionary, they defined Palestinian as a Jewish person who returned to Israel from Moscow and the Jews from Israel who volunteered to fight with the British army against the Germans. So until Yasser Arafat coined this phrase, it was always ascribed to the Jewish people. So there is no such thing as Arab Palestinians. So I hope I've explained that to you well enough. Um, Those who call themselves Palestinians today are actually descendants of those 50 divergent people groups that the Encyclopedia Britannica talks about. They are an amalgamation of many different cultures, but now they all have Arab identity. And I can testify to the fact when you move to the South, you take on Southern traditions and you become a Southerner. And it's the same way with those people who moved to the Arab world. They became Middle Easterners and they took on Arab culture. And so now they see themselves as Arabs and as, quote, Palestinians. Okay, so let me go to the third question. And that is, what's the goal of the PLO, the Islamic Jihad and Hamas? Israel as a nation today is a little speck of land in 5 million square miles of land, which is owned by the Arab peoples. Israel today is only 9,000 square miles. It's about the size of New Jersey, which is a very small state. It is one one-hundredth of all Arab lands. Now, the promise made to Abraham was of 200,000 square miles of land, but the Jewish people are very happy to settle on those 9,000 square miles. Yet, the Palestinians refuse to recognize us as an independent state. And if you go on to Overhead 21, this is a picture of Yasser Ar- of uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president uh, in the West Bank, And he is displaying a a map of Palestine. And that map does not have the name Israel any place on the map. The name given to the land is called Palestine. And in written in English around the map is Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt. There is no mention of Israel. So basically the goal of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and all of these uh, groups is to wipe Israel off the map. And if anybody tells you any different, 
Don't believe them. So question number four, and I'm going a little faster now. How is the media handling this crisis? Okay, well, here you see a picture of a young man who is a bloody mess uh, with a police holding a stick over him. And the caption on this picture says, an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on the Temple Mount. So basically what you're supposed to believe from this picture is here is this Israeli policeman who just battered this Arab on the Temple Mount. Well, this picture was released in the New York Times in September of 2000. And two days later, the editor of the uh, New York Times received a letter from a man by the name of Dr. Aaron Grossman. And this is what he said about that picture. Regarding your picture of the Israeli soldier and the Palestinian on the Temple Mount, the Palestinian is actually my son, Tovia Grossman, a Jewish student from Chicago. He and two of his friends were pulled from their taxi cab while traveling in Jerusalem by a mob of Palestinian Arabs and was severely beaten and stabbed. That picture could not have been taken on the Temple Mount because there are no gas stations on the Temple Mount. Certainly none with Hebrew lettering, like the one clearly seen behind the Israeli soldier attempting to protect my son from the mob. So in reality, what happened in this picture is exactly the opposite of what the caption says. This is not an Arab, it is an Israeli. This is not the Temple Mount. This is an Arab village. And it's not an Arab who was beaten and stabbed. It was a Jewish student. And as a result of this picture in the New York Times, a new nonprofit organization was formed. It was called HonestReporting.com. If you go to the next overhead... And if you ever hear anything in the news about the Jewish people and you're kind of wondering what the other side of the story is, go to this website and they will tell you what really happened. And there's another website, it's palwatch.org. And this is an Israeli organization that monitors the PLO, Fatah, and Hamas to see what they're saying over the news and in school books to the Palestinians, and they're monitoring hate speech because it is all over the place. So um, I think you can see from this picture that the media is obviously biased against Israel and against the Jewish people. So then the fifth question is, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? And, you know, we hear John Kerry and President Obama saying, we want to work for peace. There needs to be peace. We need to create peace. Well, the Jewish prophets had a lot to say about peace. If we go to the next overhead, Jeremiah said, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
And Ezekiel said, because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace when there is no peace. Now, even though Jeremiah and Ezekiel were talking to the Jewish people before the Babylonian captivity, we also know that the absence of peace is also the story for today. And we know by reading our Bibles and by reading the New Testament that there will be a false peace under the rule of the Antichrist, but that would just be a fleeting peace. The world will not have peace until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth. So there will not be peace in the Middle East until Jesus comes back. And so then the last question, and that is, so what should you do in light of all these things which are going on? Well, the word of God is very clear. In the book of Psalms, if we go to the next overheard, it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. So we, as believers in Jesus, are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, we know that uh, there is going to be strife and war, but I believe that the prayer for peace here is just as much for spiritual peace as it is for physical peace. And as we pray for the spiritual peace of Jerusalem, pray for the Jewish people and for the Arabs who believe in Jesus, who embrace them as Messiah, pray for them to have holy boldness and for opportunities to share Jesus with their countrymen, Jewish people with Jewish people and Arabs with Arabs and also Arabs with Jews and Jews with Arabs. Pray that the believers there would have holy boldness. And then we also feel that you should stay informed about what is going on. Read the newspapers, stay in touch with, listen to the news broadcasts on the internet, hear what is being said about what is going over on over there. Um, <clears throat> the church should have learned a lesson from World War II. Hitler could never have exterminated the Jewish people without the support of the Lutheran and the Catholic Church in Germany. Had they stood with the Jewish people, he never would have been able to exterminate them. And we, as righteous men today, must also make our voices heard with our government. And I can't encourage you enough to write your senators and your congressmen and the president and tell them that you expect them to stand with Israel. If we as a nation want to be blessed... We only will be blessed as we stand with Israel. If we want to be cursed, we'll be cursed as we remove our support of Israel. So stand with the Jewish people. And um, <clears throat> we have an example of this blessing and cursing in the nation of Britain. Most people don't realize that. Britain gave the promise to the Jewish people for a Jewish national homeland. And this was in about 1917. And in 1922, they began to renege on those promises. And 1922 is the same year that the British Empire began to dissolve 
and disintegrate. Exactly the same year. That was the year that is that Egypt gained its sovereignty over England, and she was the first of many nations who would no longer be ruled by England. <clears throat> so, how can you? How else can you stand with and support the Jewish people? Um, we also believe that Christians should support Jewish people financially, and we get this from the Book of Romans. Now, you know, a lot of people have this notion that everybody who's Jewish is rich. And I can tell you it's not true. Because most of the people that I lead to the Lord are working class Jewish people. Not every Jew is rich. And in the book of Romans, it says, if we could, I think I have it in the next overhead. It says, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jewish people's spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jewish people to share with them their material blessings. Now, the Jewish people have blessed you because from our nation came the Messiah. Jesus was the son of David from the tribe of Judah. If he hadn't been born within the tribe of Judah, there wouldn't have been a Messiah or a Savior, not only for the Jewish people, but for the entire world. And so you have been blessed by the Jewish people. And so God now wants you to be a blessing to us. And the greatest way for you to be a blessing to us is to share your faith with the Jewish people that you know. And as I go from church to church, I often get people coming up to me after the service and saying, oh, I already support the Jewish people. I give my money to the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of that organization. They have ads on Christian TV all the time. They're, they are endorsed by John Hagee and Pat Robertson. And this organization is led by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Yahiel Eckstein. And Christians who give their money to this organization think that he's a Jewish believer in Jesus but he isn't. He's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who is against the preaching of the gospel. And none of the money that is given by Christians to him goes for the spiritual blessing of the Jewish people. And as a matter of fact, Christians have given over $800 million to him to be a blessing to the Jewish people. All of them have been misled because it's not being given to them in the name of Jesus. It's being given to them in the name of Jewish organizations in Israel. So uh, if you are giving your money to the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, we highly recommend that you reconsider what you are doing and rather give your support to organizations that are really sharing the gospel with Jewish people. And uh, I work with CJF Ministries. We're one of three organizations in the United States who are commissioned to share the gospel with Jewish people. There's Jews for Jesus, and you've had a visitor from Jews for Jesus here before. There's our organization, the Christian Jew Foundation. And there's also another organization called Chosen People Ministries. 
So it's our prayer that you will support one of these three organizations instead of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. And, um, of course, being a missionary, I'm always having to raise support. But if you're interested in getting to know me better as a missionary, um, each of you should have one of these gray pamphlets that you got on your way in. If you take out that pamphlet, you notice in the back panel, there's a place, if you'd open it up at this point, if everybody take it out and just open it up to the back panel, you notice that there's a place where you can fill out your name and address. If you'd like to get on my personal prayer letter, just check off the box on that envelope where it says, please send me your newsletter so I can pray for the work of CJF Ministries. Fill out your name and address or email address, and we will send, I will send that newsletter to you once a quarter, either through email or physical mail, whatever you designate on that envelope. And if you check off that box, you will also get this magazine that each of you should have a copy of. We send this out every other month. So if you want to stay in touch with me, please go ahead and fill out the information on that envelope and thus bring it to the literature table in the foyer on your way out because I have a literature table out there. So just tear it off and then bring it to the literature table in the back. And I can tell you that... uh, I, I always share news about what's going on in, in the ministry, so you'll hear about the great things that God is doing in the city of New Orleans. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is I have a calendar with me here today, and all of those people who have a Jewish friend who doesn't believe in Jesus, you're in touch with them. Would you raise your hand again? I know I asked you to do this earlier. We have one, two, three... Four, five, and I'm missing somebody. Six, okay. Um, I have these calendars on the literature table. I would like each of you six people to please pick up one of these calendars and give it to your Jewish friend as a gift from our ministry. Uh, it's a great way to sow the seeds of the gospel with your Jewish friend in a very non-threatening manner. And I will talk to you more about that uh, when I see you after the service has been concluded. So let me go back then to the questions that I was supposed to answer at the beginning. If we could go back to overhead number four, towards the beginning of the... Uh, so to whom does the land belong? I think I've answered that. It belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people. Who are the Palestinians? There is, in fact, no such thing as a Palestinian. What is the goal of Hamas, PLO, Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah? It's to force the Jewish people into the sea. How is the media handling this crisis? It seems to be very biased. Will there ever be peace in the Middle East? Not until the Prince of Peace returns. And what should you do in response to this crisis? You should pray for the peace of Jerusalem 
support the Jewish people and especially Jewish evangelistic organizations so that you can be a blessing both spiritually and materially to the Jewish people. Thank you so much for letting me share this with you. I hope that you've been enlightened. I hope you see the, you have a biblical perspective now on what is going on in the Middle East. And now if anybody comes to you and raises propaganda, which is false, I hope that you will answer your friends in a very kind and gentle manner and tell them how you disagree. You know, um, I gave this talk in another church in Mississippi, and there was a Jewish woman in, the, in that sanctuary, and she said to me, you know, somebody could get the impression from what you said that you are against the Arab peoples. And I want you to know that nothing could be further than the truth. I am not against the Arab peoples. I am for them. I want them to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And God tells us that we are to love even our enemies. And so I love the Muslim and I love the Arab. And I'm doing everything as God provides the opportunities for me to be a blessing to everyone, not only to the Jewish people, but to all peoples. And we are to have the same attitude as well. And so I hope you will always remember that as you stand up for the Jewish people. Amen.